title of this morning's sermon is The Wisdom of the Ages. We will be taking our text from Psalm 49. Shall we rise, please, and read together Psalm 49? For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of those after them who approve their words, Salah. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, and though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Shall we bow our heads in prayer at this time? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you once again for this wonderful opportunity to bring glory and praise to your most holy name. Indeed, you deserve it, and we decide to give it to you today, as always. And Father, once again, we come before you with hearts and minds that are open to receive from your word. And we pray, O God, that we will be receptive, that we will be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. I pray for myself, O God, that you might use me as a conduit of blessing to your people. Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, there are certain teachings that we need to pay close attention to because they are extremely relevant and extremely important. In fact, some of these teachings are a matter of life and death. This teaching happens to be one of them. And the reason why I feel this is very important is because 
this is a subject matter that everybody wants to avoid. It is a subject matter of death. And yet here in this psalm, we find that the psalmist meets this subject matter or he meets death head on. And he speaks about it and we are able to derive many, many spiritual nuggets. And that is what I hope to be able to bring out to you, the spiritual gems that you and I can find in this psalm. Now, there are very uh, simple points uh, to this uh, psalm. In fact, just three. In verses 1 to 2, we have a call to all men. And then in verses 3 to 4, you have the pedagogy of teaching. And then in verses 5 to 20, the specific contents of the teaching. So shall we begin and dive into our study as I unpack to you this passage? Let's look at verses 1 to 2, and this is a call to all men. Now, it says here in verses 1 and 2, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. Now, you will notice here that the psalmist is calling everyone to listen or to pay attention to what he has to say. Obviously, again, for him to do that, that means that he feels that this is something that is important, not only for some people, but for all people. The, men the message clearly here is universal. And it is uh, something that is to be applied to all men, regardless of their stature or their wealth. This is something that they need to hear. Now, pay close attention to what I have to say. The word ear here is a hefil verb stem, which conveys a necessary action. In other words, this is a must-listen-to psalm. Again, this is a must listen to psalm. Now, there are many psalms, obviously, and some of those psalms have different degrees of importance. But if we are to believe the psalmist, he is saying this is of utmost importance. It is, this is a must-hear sermon. Now, the pedagogy of teaching is found in verses 3 to 4. And allow me to read this for us. It says, my mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the heart. Now, if there's one thing that the psalmist ensures or assures us in regard to his teaching, he is saying that this is going to be extremely practical for us. Practical that we are given wisdom for life and living. Now, this is quite akin to the wisdom literature that we find, for example, in the book of Proverbs, as well as in some of the wisdom psalms. Now, there are two methods that he uses in this particular psalm. Obviously, something that he had also gotten from somewhere. He will be using Proverbs as well as that of riddles. Now, what is a proverb? 
Well, a proverb is a pithy saying that is a general guideline for how we are to live our lives so that we might be granted favor by God or blessings by the Lord. On the other hand, riddles are enigmatic sayings conveying meaning which is not obvious and evoking closer attention to its thought-provoking content. So there are many methods in uh, teaching, and the psalmist here wants to employ this method because he believes that with these methods, we will be best able to comprehend what he is trying to communicate to us. So let's go quickly right now into the specific contents of the teaching in verses 5 to 20. You will notice that we're going through very quickly with the points that we are studying here. And the main focus really are the specific teachings that he brings out before us. These are true spiritual nuggets, through true spiritual gems, which not only have value for our earthly lives, but they have great value for the next life, which you and I, by the way, should be investing in. Again, the Lord exhorts us in the Gospels that we are not to lay treasures here on earth, but we are to lay treasures in heaven. Uh, in uh, one of the epistles as well, it says that we are not to fix our eyes on things below, but on things above. And basically, the specific teachings that you and I will discover has to do with this. And so let's begin with the first one in verses 5 to 6. And the lesson here is do not fear the rich and the powerful. Now look at the questions here. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foe surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Now, you're probably aware that there are certain questions that happen to be rhetorical questions, questions that already have a ready answer. And obviously, the ready answer here is that we are not to fear. We are not to fear those who are rich, those who are wealthy, and those who are powerful. Now, the word fear here is a Hebrew imperfect, which expresses ongoing action. And the thought here is that we are not to fear the powerful and the wealthy now in the present, and we are not to fear them as well in the future. In other words, we are never ever to fear them. Now, the implication here is that the rich and the powerful that are being mentioned here are people who are probably oppressing those who are poor, those who are powerless those who are helpless. That is the implication that we find in this passage. Now, at the heart of this thought that we are not to fear these powerful and wealthy people is the fact that God is the most powerful being in the entire universe. And He has our back. And because of that, we are not to fear them because we fear God. We are relying on God. We are trusting in God. We have faith in God, in His purposes, and in His will, and in His promises. So that is the overall thought 
I believe that the psalmist is trying to imply in this passage. Now, of course, when we talk about the rich, the wealthy, the powerful, they always have this illusion of control. But then again, as I've shared to you in other psalms or in other previous teachings that I, I gave to you, it, it is God really who is in control. He is sovereign over everything. Going back to verse 6, I'd like to share a very important point where it says in verse 6, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Now, the word boast here happens to be a hit feel which expresses vibrant, delighting from the heart. In other words, the wicked just love to boast. The wicked people just love to boast. And by the way, it is also in the imperfect tense. In other words, boasting to them is a way of life. The whole of their lives has to do with boasting about their wealth, boasting about their achievements, accomplishments, probably the things that they have built or constructed. These were the things that they loved talking about. And it was always in grand display before other people. And God is saying that we are not to be intimidated with such people who boast about such things because whatever control they have, is really just an illusion. It is God who is really in control. Now, in uh, verses 7 to 9, we find a second lesson here. No man can pay God that he may live long or eternally. Let's read verses 7 to 9. It says, No man can by any means redeem his brother, or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Now, what the psalmist is saying here is he talks about the reality of our own mortality. And he's telling us that nobody even the wealthy, can possibly purchase their own immortality or at the very least the extension of their lives. They cannot do that. Uh, there is no amount of money that can purchase immortality. Now, taken in the light of the New Testament and what Christ has done, immortality or eternal life can only be gained by the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way to eternal life, and that is the only way to immortality. And there's something quite interesting here when it says, no man can by any means redeem his brother. Now, the word means here is a contrast emphasis, which basically tells us that there is absolutely nothing or there's absolutely no means by, you, by which you and I can redeem ourselves, redeem our lives, or purchase immortality. Simply nothing. 
There is no means by which you and I can have immortality apart from what God gives to us. In other words, only God can grant us immortality. And once again, that has been achieved and accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. Now, this is how the phrase, for the redemption of his soul is costly, would be interpreted in the light of New Testament truth. And so I'd like to quote to you 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed, there you go, you find that phrase, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So again, if you want to uh, have the redemption which produces immortality, it can only be accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is quite clear, it cannot be purchased by silver or gold. Now, going back to our text and reading uh, verse 8, it says, For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease striving or trying forever. He should cease trying forever. Now, the word cease is interesting here. It is a conjunctive perfect in the Hebrew, which tells that the person should certainly stop trying to redeem his soul because it simply cannot be done. Again, the conjunctive perfect tells us that the person should certainly stop trying to redeem his soul it cannot be done. It is a useless, worthless effort. It won't produce anything at all. So again, looking at this psalm, there are so many spiritual nuggets that we can derive out of this, most especially as we look at this psalm in the light of New Testament truth. The New Testament truth somehow completes our understanding of Psalm 42, and we're able to glean lessons um, in a progressive manner. And again, we thank the Lord Jesus Christ for revealing all these things to us. Otherwise, we would all be helpless and hopeless. And uh, uh, a lot of people will just have to accept the fact that they're all mortal beings without any hope of eternal life. But again, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has changed all of that. Now, the next lesson or the third lesson here is the certainty of death and the loss of everything material. Notice what verse 10 says. For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the sen senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Now, regardless of one's intelligence or uh, measure of wealth, remember this one thing, we cannot escape death and the loss of all things. That is a reality we all have to face. The sad thing is that oftentimes wealth or riches give us a false sense of security. 
Because people who are wealthy think that they can get the best doctors, they can go to the best uh, hospitals, uh, they have the best uh, health system, or probably they have bought all the insurance that they need uh, in relation to their health, and many other things that, that uh, gives them a false sense of security. But then again, friends, no matter what we have, remember this, we will all die and we will lose all the things that you and I have. So no matter what we gain, whether it be possessions, cars, houses, uh, companies, corporations, all of that will be lost in the end. The implication here is the vanity of life that is lived merely for selfish, for a selfish agenda or for selfish pleasure. Why? Because it is vanity. Why? Because of the transient nature of life. Whatever we accomplish or possess in this life, we will lose that forever. As Job said, naked was I born into this world, naked shall I return. We bring nothing with, uh, with us when we go to the next life. This is why you and I have to look beyond our earthly lives. We have to look beyond our earthly lives. Now I know there are so many things that are important to us. Our jobs, our businesses, our families, and we would like to invest for the future of our families. And, and all of that is important. But let us remind ourselves that life here on earth is fleeting. So if all our focus, if all that we are aspiring and dreaming about is this earthly life, then I pity you. Because again, there is something to look beyond this earthly life. And this is what God promises. He, he promises everlasting life to those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who make Jesus their personal Lord and Savior. In John 3.16, which is a very common passage, all the way to verse 18, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, God has the answer to our own mortality. God has the answer to this transient life. God has the answer to this temporal life that is without meaning apart from God. He has the answer. And He has given it to the rest of mankind for mankind to respond and receive this most precious gift of immortality and eternal life. It says here, verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This is the reason for the incarnation. The incarnation was for the salvation of mankind. That was the purpose of it. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to judge the world at that time. There's going to be a time in the future wherein he will do that. 
But in so far as the public ministry of Jesus was concerned, in uh, the last um, in the in the two thousand years that had passed, his desire was to save people, to bring them to himself, for them to come to the saving knowledge of himself. But you and I know that that did not happen with majority, even of those people who were of the kin of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were his relatives did not come to him. I'm talking about the Jews. In verse 18, it says, who be, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you know what this is saying? It is saying that if you believe in Christ, if you believe in the sacrifice, if you believe in Calvary, if you believe in the saving grace that is brought about by the priceless blood of Jesus Christ, you will not be judged. And what that means, when you fast forward it, it means that you will not go to hell. In other words, what it means is that you will go to heaven. All it takes is for you to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His person, and in His work. And that is not so difficult to do. But the problem, I believe, for many of us is that we are so proud and so arrogant that we would like to make a contribution to our salvation. We want to have a participation in our salvation. That is why we are relying on our own good works rather than relying on that one good work that Jesus Christ performed in Calvary. That is all it takes. That one good work. To believe in Him we will not be judged. And again, this is a promise that we find in Scripture. But how many have the faith or the eyes to see what Jesus is saying in this passage? And that is why, once again, any hope of eternal life, any hope of immortality is found in one person alone. And that happens to be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why life has to have a higher purpose. Life cannot just be about a salary raise or a promotion in your job or accumulating money or having many bank accounts or investing uh, in properties and, and all of that. Life cannot just simply be like that. It will be meaningless and purposeless in the very end. And that is why Paul himself talks to us about the higher purpose of life. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the life that you and I are supposed to live. The life that Paul lived, wherein he was saying that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. 
And, and sadly, many believers, many Christians are, are not living this, this life. They are living their lives as if they have not been purchased by the priceless blood of Christ. They are living their lives as if they still own their lives. The truth of the matter is when you surrendered your life to Christ, you no longer own your life. God owns it. And that is why the exhortation and admonition of the Bible is because Christ has redeemed us, Christ has purchased us. Let us glorify God in our bodies. This is what needs to happen. And this is the life that is all satisfying. This is the life that has meaning and has purpose. And this is the life that you and I are to live. Again, brethren, we find so many spiritual nuggets. What I find with Psalm 42, it, it's like a, a springboard that, that propels us into New Testament truth. Truth that brings meaning and purpose to our lives. And I pray that this is, this is a psalm that you and I would somehow allow to be embedded in our hearts because there is so much truth here. Now, a fourth lesson here is about denial versus reality as found in verses 11 to 14. Allow me to read verses 11 to 14 at this time. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They've called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those who are who after them approve their words. Salah. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. Now, when we say, or when I speak about denial, I do not mean to say that people are really saying that people don't really die. I mean, we all know because many of our friends and our relatives, our neighbors, and, and those we know, many of them have died and passed on to the next life. So yes, we do know that everybody dies. But the basic thought, and I believe you will agree with me, with most people is, yes, I will die, but not today. In fact, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year. The thought of most people is we will always have one more day to live. And this is the reason why people live as if they will never, ever die. That is the thought of so many people, and they have so many excuses for not believing that today might be the day or tomorrow might be the day I die. And the reason might be, well, because I'm young. Or in the case of these people, they were saying, well, we're wealthy and we're strong. We have the best nutrition. We have the best food possible. We have the best life ever. We're not exposed to those viruses and that bacteria. We have a very clean and nice way of life. And that is why there is denial. 
And that is why they are in denial. Uh, they think that their houses and their properties will remain forever. They even name some of their properties or their land after their own names. The sad reality, however, is that we will all die just like all the beasts of the earth. Our own human existence will have a period and some will have an exclamation mark. It is not an endless comma. Now, worse than physical death is the second death or the lake of fire, which seems to be the implication in verse 14. And I'd like to give you a cross-reference. In Luke 16, verse 19, it says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And so Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So this is what I would like to focus on at this time. A lot of people fail to realize that when you die, it's not the cessation of life. The truth of the matter is we simply are separated from our earthly bodies. If you do a little word study of the word death, the word death simply means separation. So when you and I die uh, from this earthly life, what simply happens is that our body or our spirit will be separated from our body. But our spirit lives on. Now the big question that I would like to ask you is this. If our spirit lives on after it leaves the body, where will it be living its existence? And we are told in this narrative, and there are some people who say that this is possibly a parable. And in my thinking, in my personal humble opinion, I don't think that this is really a parable because when Jesus uses parables, he does not use proper names. Uh, but in this case, we find the name Lazarus. We find uh, the name Abraham. So the Lord was using actual people. And that is why I believe this must not be a parable. And having said that, we are given a picture of what happens in the next life. 
in the next life, we will continue to exist. In the case of this rich man, he was in the place of torments. He was in Hades. And Lazarus was in paradise. And again, we ask ourselves the question, when you and I die, where will we be spending eternity? If you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, you will spend eternity with Christ, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven, a perfect place with a perfect God. If you, however, deny, reject the Lord Jesus Christ, your future is bleak, dark, dim, and torturous because the Bible says you shall be condemned to the lake of fire. And I hope and pray that is not going to happen to you. If you're listening to me right now, I hope that you are not mocking nor laughing at this message. I hope and pray that you are listening and paying attention and giving this serious thought because your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we move on and talk about the portion of the righteous in 14b and verse 15. In verse 14, it says, The upright shall rule over them in the morning. And then in verse 15, it says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Now you will notice here that the ones who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ have a different destiny. What is being talked about here is not only immortality or eternal life, but even rulership in the world to come. And by the way, the word morning here suggests that another day is coming. What the thought here is life hereafter. There is a life hereafter. And again, let me just remind you of that. Now, going back to verse 15, it says, But God will redeem my soul. That phrase, but God, tells us that redemption is accomplished by God and by God alone. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, this is what it says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So again, we find here the purpose of the Incarnation. The purpose of the incarnation was our own redemption. And that was something that Christ himself had accomplished in our lives. Now, quite interestingly, you will notice in verse 15, it says, For he will receive me, Selah. Now, the Bible scholar Dr. Carl Armerding points out, and this is what he says, and let me quote, it has been pointed out that when the psalmist said, He shall receive me, he used the same word 
which Moses used when he said of Enoch, he was not, for God took him in Genesis 5 verse 24. Now you and I know that Enoch did not die, but he was translated straight away into heaven. And again, that is the same Hebrew word that is used here by the psalmist himself, which means to say that we, if we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, we will be received into the portals of heaven. And so we find in verses 16 to 20, the summary and the conclusion. And the summary and conclusion is this. Do not fear the rich and the powerful, for death is their portion. Let me read to you verses 16 and 17, first of all. It says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. The rich and powerful are not to be feared for everything they have will be taken away from them at the time of their death. Now the word do not be afraid, once again, is in the imperfect tense, which tells us we are not to fear them now and we are not to fear them as well in the future. Let me share to you a parable. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable, saying, The Lord, the land rather, of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and, and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a sad plight in the case of those who are rich and powerful and yet do not have the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, uh, the Bible is not condemning the rich and the powerful, but the rich and powerful need to make sure that they do have Jesus Christ in their lives. Because apart from Jesus Christ, they enter into a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. And just like the parable that is uh, read before us, we do not know our time of death. And that is why, as the book of James says, let us not boast about tomorrow, for we do not know what tomorrow will bring. So then, if we are not to fear those who are rich and powerful, then who are we to fear? Well, the Bible is very clear. We are to fear the Lord. Let me read to you Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. 
it says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now remember this. The power of death belongs to God. He alone can bring a person. He alone decides when a person is going to die. And he decides where a person will be depending on how you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. A very fearful warning for those who do not have the Lord Jesus. And I pray that as you're listening to me, you would come to Christ, rely on Christ and Christ alone, not on your good works, but only on the good work that Jesus Christ performed in Calvary. His priceless blood will cleanse and wash you from all your sins, past, present, as well as that in the future. Now, we continue on with Psalm 42, verse 18. It says, Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, and though men praise you when you do well for yourself. Now, what is this saying? All accolades, all the admiration and applause that is given to you by the world is for naught. It produces nothing in the end. Because in the end, you will just become a distant memory and you will actually be forgotten. And when you are in the lake of fire, you will not remember after all, all those accolades and all those applause that will be practically meaningless in the lake of fire. And then continuing on in verses 19 and 20, it says, He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now that phrase, he shall go to the generation of his fathers, is taken by some Bible scholars to mean that those who have gone ahead of us continue to exist. And of course, we know that is true. As I mentioned to you, death does not mean the cessation of life but simply transferring from this temporal life into a life everlasting, either life everlasting with God or life everlasting in hell. And so all men are equal in death. Actually, we are all just like the beasts. I mean, the beasts uh, would die, they would perish, and that is likewise true in our case. Our money even if we would get the best medication, the best uh, vitamins and minerals, even the best doctors and the best treatment, will not be able to purchase immortality. And friends, we have got to stop trying to purchase our own immortality because it's not going to happen. It will never, ever happen. Now, as we meditate and ponder on Psalm 42, we see the two faces of death. One face of death that is present to us is ugly and horrific. And this is the face of death that people who have rejected Christ will face. 
On the other hand, I've been able, through the New Testament passages, I've been able to paint to you the beautiful picture of death. And it is a beautiful face that you will see if you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. The choice for you are watching me right now is laid before you. It is for you to re reject Christ and end up in hell or for you to accept, surrender to Christ, make him the Lord and Savior of your life, repent of your sins, and eternal life is going to be given to you as a free gift. And that is my prayer to you. If that is the, the tug in your heart that you feel, then kneel down before Christ. Come before Him. Make Him the Lord and Savior of your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You and praise You for the Word. And we pray that the Word will indeed impact those who are listening. And Lord, let it not return to you null and void, but let it accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.